Beth before I have a baby. Um, which is crazy. Um, so, kind of a cool UCF for me. Um, Mandy and I are getting ready to have a baby really soon. Um, and, uh, yeah, pretty excited about it. Um, I'll, I'll admit to you guys that I really like stories, hence we've been doing this story of scripture thing this semester. I really am a sucker for a good story, but I'll also admit to you guys that I'm one of those guys that likes to read, like, the end. Like, just when you get a book, like a, a, a story, a fiction book kind of thing, like, I'll read, like, the last paragraph and just try to figure out what's going on. Um, and I say that to say that the, the section of the story of Scripture we're going to cover tonight, um, we're actually going to sort of fast forward to the very sort of end of this section in Israel's history, and we're going to work our way backward to sort of our main text for tonight. So we're going to do a little bit different. Um, instead of just going from our main text and just kind of working our way forward, we're actually going to start sort of at the end of this part of Israel's history. It's a tragic scene, and work our way back and try to figure out what the heck happened. Um, how did God's people, who were called to be something different and set apart, how did they um, end up in this situation? So um, that's kind of how we'll approach tonight. It'll be a little bit different. Second um, Chronicles chapter 36. Um, we're actually going to go to four different places in Scripture, starting here. Um, let me pray for us first. Lord, we do pray that now that you guide us as we explore your word. Um, Lord, as we take a look at this story, um, the story of what you've done, um, the story of the failure of your people. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that your spirit would really open our eyes um, to see the truths that are in your word. Um, Lord, I pray that in this, that you'd help us find ourselves um, in this story, that we'd We'd see how our lives just correspond to sort of the grander thing that you've been doing in your world since the beginning. Um, Lord, and I guess more than anything tonight, we do pray that you set our hope in Christ. Um, Lord, so we do pray by the power of your spirit that you'd be our teacher. God, that you'd do what only you can do. Um, Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, would you take these words that I've prepared. And Lord, would you make them your very own word um, to us and for us tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Second Chronicles 36, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Okay, so we're going to start in this scene and work our way back. Second um, Chronicles 36, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, 
And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Um, This scene right here is what um, I would probably go so far to say is probably the most tragic scene in the Old Testament. Um, This is what became known as the the exile. Um, A pagan king marches into Jerusalem. Um, He's able to burn down parts of Jerusalem. He's able to take the, the precious things that reflected the glory and beauty of God that were in the temple and he took those things, and um, the, the account in Second Kings tells us that he, they chopped these things up into pieces. Um, he, he puts people to death. He has no mercy. A pagan king has no mercy over the, on the people of God whatsoever. Um, this moment just ends up being just this sort of tragic scene because God's people, his chosen treasured possession, is sort of how we read it last week. His treasured possession, Israel... Um, is carted off and taken into exile. And this word exile is kind of a strong word in the Old Testament. I mean, it literally means something along the lines of the stripping bear, the absolute uncovering. Um, God had totally stripped bear and uncovered his people and shamed them um, because what they, just a consistent and persistent um, disobedience toward him. So we have a, a, an evil king who comes in um, and, and, and conquers the people of God. We hear in verse 14 that priests and officers, officers of the priests, leadership in Israel, that they are unfaithful to God. Um, there's violence. There's, there's mass killings. Um, the temple stuff taken. The cities burned. The lands laid desolate. In the second king's account, we're told that this king, Zedekiah, that he's brought before the pagan king and he has to watch his sons killed. And then they gouge out his eyes. So the last thing he sees is his son's murder. They gouge out his eyes and take him as a prisoner. And the account in 2 Kings tells us that the only ones who survived this whole thing in Jerusalem, that they ran away to Egypt to flee. And if you kind of paid attention to the story of Scripture, remember the great moment of God's deliverance was delivering his people out of Egypt. But now the people have to run to Egypt to, to, to escape. It's like the whole beauty, wonderful thing of the Exodus. Um, it's been like undone and reversed. Do you guys see that? This is just a terrible, tragic scene. So what happened? Like why were God's people carted off? Why were they taken into exile? Um, how did we get here? If you were reading the Bible as a story and you read this scene, you'd say, hold on a second. You've got to explain some things to me. Because based on what we said last week, this special treasure possession of God, they've been stripped bare and, and, and carted off by pagan kings. What happened? Um, so we'll kind of work our way back. Lots of things, complicated things happen. We're going to take a couple of scenes. Um, go to Second uh, Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. Okay, this comes in a section when we're hearing about all the kings of Israel. Um, and the kings of Israel have a terrible record in this part of Scripture. When you read, you read one after another. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you just hear that repeat over and over. And every now and then there's a king who did something good. 
Um, and, and Manasseh is sort of a classic example of an evil king. Um, so we're going to take Manasseh as an example of what these kings, who these kings were. Um, what did they do to, to, to lead the people toward this moment of being stripped bare and carted off in exile? Um, chapter 21. Look at, we'll, we'll, get, we'll kind of skip around a couple of places, but um, start in verse 2. Um, it's talking about Manasseh. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. These high places were places of pagan worship. This king Hezekiah destroyed them, but this king Manasseh builds them back, builds up sinners again to worship pagan gods. He erected altars for the Baal and the Asherah, as Ahad, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So he's worshipping stars rather than God. Look at verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Um, he burns his son as an offering to these pagan gods. Um, in verse 7, And the carved image of the Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He takes a pagan um, statue image thing and he puts it right in the middle of the temple, the place where God was supposed to be worshipped in a unique way. And he puts it right there. Um, verse 9, um, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So God had cleared out these nations. Um, he had conquered these nations, allowing people to take possession of the land. But Manasseh led the people of God to do worse evil than any of those nations had ever done. Um, this is a tragic scene. Um, verse 11, Manasseh, king of Judah, had committed these abominations and had done more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him. And has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, the account of this scene of Manasseh in Second Chronicles tells us that at the end of Manasseh's life that he actually repented and turned to the Lord. But then it goes on to say, but the evil that he had done and the ways in which he had led the people of God to do terrible evil, um, it, was, it was too late. God, God could not um, bear. He had, he had to punish that. Um, he had to bring this kind of disaster against his people. So we're told here that God was behind God's people being carted off and being um, captured into captivity. Um, the hand of God did this to his people to punish them for their wickedness, Manasseh being a good example. And in this section of the biblical story, when the kings are, um, are committing these kind of awful evils, um, the prophets show up. This is where the prophets kind of fit within the biblical story. And the prophets basically show up and, to paraphrase, they, they show up and start saying, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You're called to be a particular kind of people, remember? You're called to be this holy nation, but you're worshiping all these other gods. You're acting just like every other nation. You're called to be this nation of justice, um, but you're becoming a nation that oppresses. Um, the prophets show up and they, and they say things like this. In Isaiah 1, um, Isaiah says that, that he actually hates the people's worship. He hates their worship festivals. He hates their feasts. 
Because one thing we learn in their history is what they were doing is that they weren't obeying God. They were worshiping other gods, but they'd still go to the temple and go about and do the same old worship routine and, and kind of pretend like everything was okay. And they'd sacrifice the Lord. They'd do things. And God has to tell them, like, like do, you, do you think I want your, your sacrifices? Like, do you think I want you to just sacrifice to me when your heart is far from me? And he says, I hate your, your feasts and your assemblies. But instead, correct oppression. Um, look after the orphan. Look after the fatherless. Actually be the people of God you're supposed to be. Don't play a game just worshiping me when you're not being that kind of people. Um, Micah shows up and says a very similar message. Um, did I ask for you to just sacrifice tons of animals to me? No, instead do justice and love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Um, we, we hear in a, in a prophet like Jeremiah um, that the people of God were beginning to disobey God and, and practice all these injustices, worship all these false gods, but they'd still kind of run to God's temple and say things like, well, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like, in other words, we're here, we're worshiping God, you can't really do anything to us because we're doing... And he basically tells them, no, like, like, that's not what I've asked from you, and I am not afraid to bring judgment and punishment um, to you. So God says harsh things to these kings and the prophets. But ultimately, we see God's tenderness. He tells them in another place in Jeremiah that I don't want you to chase after broken cisterns, things that can never satisfy you. You have a chance to have me. Don't chase after things that can never satisfy you. Um, and the, the prophet Joel, um, he, the prophet encourages the people of God, like, turn from this, turn from this, and maybe God will relent and he won't bring disaster upon you. So it's a dark situation in the, the history of the people of God. They've been carted off into exile. And if we kind of back up, they've got these evil kings that are leading them into like further and further evil. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here we hear about Solomon, a famous king, one of the most famous kings of Israel. He's the son of David, okay? David's the most famous, I guess, but Solomon's one of the, the second most famous, perhaps. He's the son of David. And Solomon does some good things. He's wise. He brings blessing to the people of God and to some of the foreign nations, but something happens um, in verse, um, in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, um, Verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. Okay, for real. 700 wives, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, that abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So Solomon constructs these worship centers to these other gods. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon decides that he wants to pursue sort of the gods, the little g-gods of sensual pleasure, sexual pleasure. The, the, the little g-god of his just physical appetite. 
um, and in his money, um, in his power, instead of pursuing the, the real true God of Israel. And we learn at this point in the story, when Solomon does these things, that it starts to completely tear apart the um, whole nation of Israel. Kingdoms become divided, um, the northern and the southern, and there's all this fighting and rivalry, and, and all these things happen. Um, because once again, one of God's people, is, is his people were failing to be his people. Um, his, the leaders of the people were leading the people of God, into, into further idolatry and sin. Um, so let's make our final jump back here um, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. So the people of God are carted off into exile. We hear of these kings that do nothing but evil, um, that lead the people of God into deep, dark sin and spiritual rot. And then we hear about this King Solomon who pursues materialism and sexual pleasure and forsakes God and worships other gods. And then we kind of come back to sort of the root of all of this, sort of in the biblical narrative in this point of Israel's history, 1 Samuel 8. Look at verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out, up out of Egypt into this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then it goes on to talk about how basically they're wanting this military sort of king who can protect them. And um, it goes on to just say that this king is going to take your sons and daughters and take them to war. He's going to tax you. And he kind of outlines what's going to happen. And then let's pick up in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel basically tries to talk them out of it. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And this next little bit is just shocking. Remember, the people of God were supposed to be this particular distinct nation, this holy nation, this people set apart. And listen to what they say. No, we want a king over us, verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Um, and we find out that that's what happens. A, a human king is put over them. Okay, so God's people are carted off into exile. There's all these kings that lead them into deep, dark, spiritual rotten idolatry. Solomon, the son of David, does the very same thing. Um, and it all comes because God's people decided they don't really want God to be king over them. You know, God, we know you brought us out of Egypt. You know, we know you've done all these things for us. 
Um, but like, like no thanks. Um, we really, we're really not interested in you ruling over us. Um, you see, according to like the story of Scripture to this point, God was Israel's king. Um, the Lord Himself ruled over Israel. But in this situation, if we see what happens before and after, they're beginning to fear for their own safety. Um, they're worried that all the other nations might, might conquer them. Or, and they need this military leader type of king um, to kind of protect them. When things got tough, when they got scared, when they got nervous, um, they decided they wanted to turn to a human king instead of their, their, their God, their real king. Um, and, and it's not necessarily that the people of God were never to have kings. Okay, That's what's really interesting about this. Because the book of Deuteronomy and, and further back in the Bible actually tells of days when the people of Israel probably would actually have kings. But they were supposed to be particular kinds of kings. They weren't to be kings who would just amass money and power and, and all kinds of wealth and prosperity for themselves. But they were to be holy people who were servants of God, who, who led people in the ways of God. And that was their, that was their calling. Um, but they decide they want a human king instead of God as king. And in this story... Um, God clearly, and when we read from here through a few more chapters that follow, God clearly takes this as a sign of, of their rejection over him, of him. And see, God's people have just constantly shown this like desire to reject God. Um, the golden calf incident that, that Julia referenced. Um, the people of God decided they wanted to make a, a statue to represent their God. Um, and they began to worship that. Um, Adam and Eve in the garden, how we began this whole semester. Um, the serpent comes and says, if you eat this, you can actually be like God. Like in other words, you don't have to have God be king over you. You can actually be like him yourself. And, and they like that idea. Um, over and over when they get into danger and trouble, kind of in, in the first parts of the biblical story, they, they don't want to trust God. Like the moment that, that Julia read when they come right up to the promised land and they're told to go in and just take their land, occupy their land. They see big people in there and they get scared because they don't want to trust God. When they're wandering in the wilderness, they don't want God to be king over them. Instead, they fear. They don't have any water. They don't have any food. And they, they want to disobey God. God's people always show this constant sort of habitual consistency of just saying, God, we really don't want you to rule over us. Um, at the end of the day, like I was just saying, they just basically said, God, we know you're a great king over all the earth, but we actually don't want you to rule over us. And throughout this kind of like story of scripture series, we've been really kind of challenging you guys. And, and I've been challenged in reading and thinking about this. Like, how is their story our story, right? Um, this isn't just a history lesson, you know. I'm not here on a Wednesday night just being like, hey guys, you know, the people of Israel, this bad stuff happened to them. Okay, good night. We've got cookies. You know, that's, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to say, like, how do we fit here? Like, like, where do we see our story and their story? And I know that when I hear this kind of challenging word that God's people just said, you know what, Lord, no thanks. We don't want you to rule over us. Like, I know for me, like, I know I embody that kind of attitude all the time. God, you've been really good to me. You've been really good to me. Um, but I actually want to be king over me. Thank you very much. And I do want to encourage you guys to just think and just... You know, I, I don't know what this looks like for you. Um, the things you maybe run to when you feel afraid or scared or nervous or like you've got to take your future in your own hands and you decide you want some other thing or, or person or entity or idea to kind of be the king over you and not God. Um, 
I mean, you could probably sit here and we could kind of talk about all the ways we do this in our lives. And, and you might need to do that tonight. You might need to really think about that. In what ways are you just sort of bucking the kingship of God and just saying, God, no, thank you. Um, and I, don't, I don't encourage you guys to kind of think that out tonight and, and wrestle with that. Um, but really, where I really want to focus, and just sort of as we wrap up, um, is how in this story, I, th- I really think you see the, the beauty and the grace and the mercy and just the character of God on, on such like full display in, in this story. Um, and I, it might have been hard to kind of notice. Um, but it's really interesting. It's a really weird turn in the story when God actually tells them, yeah, obey their voice. Like, like give them a king. And it's like, when you read this, and if you're reading with fresh eyes, you, 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 you know this God by now, and you know he's powerful, and he can speak the world into existence. And you almost think that when they do that, he'll say, no, forget you. I'm going to eliminate you. I'm going to blow you away. I'm going I'm to forget you. I'm going I'm to leave you. I'm going to forsake you. But that's not what he does. He actually, like, kind of stoops down on their level, and he kind of condescends to their level. And he actually says, yeah, actually, go ahead, give them a king. And yeah, he, his heart fills this sense of rejection, Scripture tells us. But, but he, he gets on their level and he begins to... And he, and he actually gives this office of kingship in the nation of Israel. And he begins to use this, these kings. Um, and lots of them failed. You know, we mentioned it earlier. So many of them failed. Um, but he began to kind of like build these people's expectations that a human king would never actually really do. And king after king after king who would fail them just, just made them more eager and more eagerly anticipating the promise of maybe there will be a king one day who will come who actually won't fail us at all. David, who was, who was the best king of all of Israel, a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't perfect. But God promises to David um, that, that a whole family of kings will come from you and, and you'll sit on the throne forever. So the people of God began to sort of... Um, sort of began looking for a king that maybe would never, ever, ever fail them. And God uses this office of kingship. He kind of stoops down on their level and says, well, I'll give you a king. I'm going to work through this office to bring redemption and bring salvation to you. This is just the kind of God that God is. Um, if you guys have ever seen like a, a dad talk to like a little kid, like a, he like sometimes will get down on his knee to like get on his level. Um, that's kind of what God does with us. Um, he, he gets down and he, and he gets kind of in the mess with us and he gets in the mess with his people and he begins taking and he begins shaping and he begins moving his people um, toward this moment where he's going to give them a, a real kind of capital K king who would never fail them. Um, we'll get to that more in the coming weeks. It's just so crazy. If, if you were to go to um, 1 Samuel 12 really quick, Just to kind of further make that point of how he isn't going to abandon them, even though they disobeyed his wishes. Um, basically, they say, we rebelled, and we asked for a king over us, and we were wrong to do that. They like, realize it really quick. And, and we hear that it's a great wickedness against the Lord that they do this. Um, but listen to, what, listen to what Samuel tells them in verse 15, chapter 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And then look at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. Yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. They say, we've done so evil. And Samuel says to them, yes, you have. But don't be afraid. You have done evil. But don't be afraid. It's like it's a misprint. It should be, you've done evil, so be afraid. But rather, it's, you've done evil. But don't be afraid, because God's not going to abandon you. It's just a beautiful picture of the way our God... And why would God do this? And, and the only thing I know is just that that's the kind of God that He is. He's willing to get down with us. Um, so in, the, in this story, I think we see God's character in the fact that He stoops, and He condescends, and He comes to our level. Um, and then the... And then the the last thing, um, he takes the rejection on himself. Do you notice that? Samuel feels like he's the one personally rejected. Um, he's getting kind of old. People don't really want him to be sort of their leader anymore. He wasn't really their king, but he was almost like that. And he feels personally rejected. But God actually says, listen, Samuel, um, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. Like, why did he allow them to reject him? I mean, this is like the God of the Bible we're talking about. Again, who can speak the world into existence. Why would he permit his people, who he literally spoke into existence, who he rescued out of, out of slavery, who he was so precious and good to, to give them parameters for how they would walk with him and be his people. He dwelt among them. Why would he just permit them to reject him? And, and that's like the great mystery of all the Bible. Um, and we don't know other than the fact that this is the kind of God that he is. He takes our rejection of him and he ultimately takes it upon himself. And that obviously comes to just be highlighted and, and, and just jumps off the pages in Christ. Um, King Jesus decides he'll take our rejection of him on himself. And the book of Philippians tells us that... that um, that he laid himself down, that he emptied himself, that he made himself nothing. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that because of that, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our king, the king of the Bible, um, the real king, um, he gains his power and his glory. And this is a really, really important idea. He gains his power and his glory by making himself lowly and taking rejection upon himself. I mean, this is a truly holy king we're talking about. So kind of the main, the main thing I want you to hear um, tonight, if, if you don't hear anything else, I say this is what you've got to hear. We have a God who comes and he, he gets on our level and he takes our rejection just kind of right square on the chin. Um, and, he, and he begins to work and he begins to redeem. Um, that's the kind of God we have. So... I don't, know, I don't know how you're supposed to wrap your life around that tonight, knowing that you've got this kind of king, this kind of God to serve and worship. Um, I have a feeling that it might lead to all kinds of kind of points of application for your life. 
Um, a God who's like this, I mean, you do kind of want to obey a God like this. You do want to surrender your whole life to Him. You do begin to know Him and sink your sort of teeth into who He is. And you want Him and you want to serve Him. And, and anything He'd ask from you would just be sort of like this, yes. Um, this is the kind of God that He is. And it leads you to not want to disobey Him. Not to want to craft other empty things to chase after I mean, it leads you to not want to sort of say, God, no thanks. We know you're a great king, but, you know, forget you. I'd rather rule over my own life. Like, knowing we have a God like this sort of, like, mitigates against all the ways we, we fail. Um, because he comes and he rescues and he redeems and he takes his, our rejection of him on himself. This is the kind of God that he is. Um, next week, we'll get into how, um, sort of at the very end of the Old Testament, he begins to make promises to this people. This people had, that had been carted off into exile, embarrassed and stripped bare, shamed, humiliated before all the nations. He began to make promises to them. Um, and we'll get into that next week. And we'll give you guys just a couple of minutes just to reflect. I know I threw a ton of stuff at you. We covered almost all the Old Testament just then. Um, <laughs> I want to give you guys a second just to let some of this sink in. Um, give you a second to reflect. The, the guys will... Um, come up in a second and um, and just lead us in worship. And um, during our worship time, I just wanted you to know, um, Mandy and I and Suzanne will be available to you to just pray with you. If anybody just, you want to talk with us about anything or we could pray for you about some way that you need to apply this in your life, we'll be there for you. Um, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us see how Lord, their story is our story. Lord, this isn't a history lesson. God, but it really is central to our identity as your people. Lord, we have a habit of just consistently rejecting your kingship over us. Lord, and we thank you that you take that, God. Lord, sometimes you bring discipline and you bring punishment like you did when you carted them off and you stripped them bare. Lord, but you ultimately restore and you redeem. Lord, and and your yes is, is... Stronger than your no, Lord, um, for us. And we're so grateful for that, God. We fail you so many ways. Lord, thank you that you're a God, Lord, who condescends, who stoops on our level, who begins to work in our lives to restore and redeem. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who somehow would permit us to reject you and to take that rejection upon yourself. And Lord, I do pray that this would have all kinds of application for our life. Lord, you begin to shape us into your people. Lord, just like so much of our identity um, is in the fact that we reject you, Lord, would so much of our identity, even here at UCF, be shaped as people who submit to you, submit to your loving kingship willingly. Lord, so we do ask that you would conquer us, Lord, that you would take more ground in our hearts, and that you do this for the glory of your great name. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.